and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. Strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. As MFTs, we often talk about the need to engage in socially responsible practice by infusing diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the way we think, our clinical theory, and the way we practice. But what does that mean? Well, today we're talking about sociocultural attunement and equity and why that is so important to the future of systemic family therapy. And we're doing that today with three experts in the field, Teresa McDowell, Carmen Knudsen-Martin, and Maria Bermudez, authors of Socially Culturally Attuned Family Therapy, now in its second edition. These three thought leaders integrate principles of societal context, power, and equity into the core concepts and practice of 10 major family therapy models our listeners will be familiar with, such as structural family therapy, narrative family therapy, Bowen, including postmodern models. Paying close attention to the how-tos of change processes, This book includes the use of more diverse voices that describe the creative application of this framework, the use of reflective questions that can be used in class, in supervision, in the therapy room. Teresa McDowell as a professor emerita and former department chair. Lewis Park spent much of her career working to re-envision marriage and family therapy education and practice in ways that better support social and relational equity. She was the co-founder of Lewis and Clark's Problem Gambling Services, where she focused on families and traditional treatment of disordered gambling. Prior to coming to Lewis and Clark, Dr. McDowell served as the director of the MFT doctoral and master's program at UConn. She also taught family therapy at Pacific Lutheran University and at Northern Illinois University. Her colleague at Lewis and Clark, Carmen Knudsen Martin is a full professor in the Marriage, Couple, and Family Therapy program. Her scholarship focuses on how the larger social context influences health and well being and how therapists can address inequities. She especially loves working with couples and is widely recognized for her work regarding gender, marital equality, and relational health. She is a founder of Social Emotional Relationship Therapy, an approach that attends to the way couple interaction, emotion, and social-cultural context come together in the clinical process. She's an AMFT-approved supervisor and an LMFT. She served as an associate editor of the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, vice president of the Family Process Institute. She's been a board member of AFTA and a president of the California Division of the AAMFT. Dr. Maria Bermudez is an MFT, an AMFT-approved supervisor, an associate professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Science at the University of Georgia, UGA. Maria's research program focuses on strength-based approaches 
and outreach for marginalized populations, specifically Latinx families. As a scholar, she attends to developmental, intersectional, and contextual issues among immigrant and transnational families. She's informed by a feminist, decolonizing, and culturally responsive methodology, including community-based research and qualitative research methods. This is a wonderful, thought-provoking interview. We'll be back at the conclusion. Are progress notes stressing you out? Good documentation is essential for a high standard of care, but the time and effort involved can feel overwhelming. If you've experienced that overwhelm, Chronicler can help. Chronicler's intuitive note builder lets you compose excellent progress notes right in your browser, often in three minutes or less. Sign up today for a two-week free trial at therapyshelf.com. That's therapyshelf.com and see how easy high-quality progress notes can be. Talking socially, culturally attuned family therapy today with the three experts. Welcome, Teresa, Carmen, and Maria. I haven't had three guests on in a while. Whether you've been in the field for a short amount of time, like a lot of our listeners, or whether you've been in the field a long time, we can always be more attuned from a social cultural perspective to our clients. So first, ladies, thank you for joining me. Give our audience just a brief description into your journey into MFT and specifically what led you to socially culturally attuned practice. I'll start. I'm Teresa. And I think my journey into MFT and into socioculturally attuned practice eventually is the same source. It's growing up in the 60s in a family where the lack of equity was prevalent and caused a lot of physical, emotional, and relational problems. So I think I had a very close up experience of what it is to be in a family where there is um, severe inequity and then the social movements and change all around us and growing up also 60 years ago as a female in a society that was predominantly male-dominated, still is. I think those kinds of factors led me to be interested in family therapy and in equity within family systems. And this is Carmen. I studied family therapy after having lived in what people might call developing countries for most of the decade before that. And when I came back to the United States, I just had such an awareness of that there's so many different ways that people live and value things. And I had been a family life educator before that, teaching high school students. And I approached therapy not from the field of psychology, but studied it in a department of sociology. So my interest has always been in how the larger social context affects people's lives. And so I've sort of began with a wider lens and then had to narrow it down to the individual. So now I see myself zooming in and zooming out at these different levels of social orders. And of course, I also grew up in the time of the women's movement. So I saw gender issues and cultural issues more clearly than I saw racial issues. So I've been learning about that over time. Hi, everyone. My name is Maria Bermudez, and I came into this work 
as a, what I always say, a true blue family therapist. I'm originally from Honduras, from Central America, but I was raised in the United States. And I was always raised bicultural, bilingual, and was very drawn to more of a systems or a contextual way in which we approach therapy or psychotherapy. And both of my graduate programs, my master's and my doctoral program were co-AMFTI programs. And then I've taught in two graduate programs in couple and marriage and family therapy. So for me, all of my research, all of my writing, my supervision, my teaching, everything is all things DEI and, and specifically on Latinx families and family dynamics. And coming into this work with Carmen and Teresa has just expanded my worldview even more. And we'll talk a little bit more about what this means to connect the dots and to be a socio-culturally attuned family therapy. And I think that I've always, of course, valued culture and stand on the shoulders of giants in our field, my feminist mentors. But at the same time, the critical consciousness wasn't there in the way that it is now. So that's a little bit about my background. Why does social cultural attunement and equity matter so much, especially in the world that we live in now in the practice of marriage and family therapy? Let me jump in to get us started on this one. I think it matters a lot because the models that we use in clinical practice and how we frame things give people messages about themselves, about who are they. Was there something wrong with them? So where we locate the problem has a lot to do with how people blame themselves, how much opportunity for other possibilities people feel. And so I worry that if we're not socioculturally attuned, we run the risk of reinforcing the power differences that are in the larger society by how we unintentionally interact with our clients. I guess I would, I can add to that a little bit about when you talked about AMFT and we're becoming more diverse and family therapy is becoming more diverse. I think what we've seen, of course, we have all been in this organization and in this field for many years and share that perspective with you, Eli. So I think what we'd see it earlier on was more about diversity being about inclusion. So we might see more in a white field, we might see more darkened bodies. We might see in a male-dominated field, more female leadership and so on. But we didn't see the ideology changing. We didn't see the core of how our epistemology, how we think about things changing. So it was more about, yes, please come into this field. And by the way, you're going to adapt yourself to a Euro-centered framework. And in fact, those of us in the center, like myself, didn't even see that it was Euro-centered. So it was just the way family therapy was. So I think what's changed so much over time is this idea about how we think, what difference it makes, how we think, what epistemological frameworks we're using, and what kind of impact that has. And that really ties into third-order thinking or thinking about how we're thinking about the multiple paradigms where truth comes from, much like the social constructionist viewpoint, but looking at all of that and what are the material consequences of those views. So there are relational consequences, there's psychological and emotional consequences, and there's physical material consequences to how we view the world. Let's define what the guiding principles are behind socially, culturally attuned 
family therapy for our listeners? So I think I can jump in with this. When we were developing this framework or this way of thinking with our first, the first edition of our book, we, we, we were struggling a little bit because we were like, we understand what this means conceptually to work toward equity and to think about all of our frameworks and models of family therapy from a critical perspective. And we understood conceptually what this meant, but then where we were struggling, we were like, what does this really mean in terms of, or I always say where the rubber hits the road, like, how do we really enact this? How do we help others really walk through this? And so then we developed this acronym called ANVIET. And ANVIET is just a way to help us remember how we can be socioculturally tuned across various contexts. So that ANVIET stands for the A is for attunement, the N is for naming, the V is for valuing. Usually you value what has typically been unvalued. UI is for interrupting. And so you interrupt systems of oppression or even not at the macro level, the micro level. E is for envisioning what is possible, where the constraints, societal constraints or relational constraints prevented you from seeing what was possible. And then lastly, transformation, which we think is working toward third order change, which we'll talk about more in, in a little bit, hopefully. But Andiet is the way that I think about this and the way that Carmen and Teresa and I continue to talk about it is that our aim is to use this Andiet acronym across all of the ways in which we work, which is as therapists, as supervisors, as teachers in our lives with our neighbors, our friends, our family, our loved ones, and in our praxis, right? So that it helps us understand the big picture and why we're doing this work. But it all starts with attunement and attuning to things or processes that normally get ignored or overlooked. So that's it in a nutshell, from my perspective. What socioculturally attuned principles bring is adding power an understanding of power processes at more the micro levels, the macro levels, and how those intersect with cultural issues. So I think a lot of the cultural competence approach created stereotyping. And if people are, are this way, you respond from this group, you respond in this way. And when we add the power dimension, we start to look at more complexity within cultures, understanding that some practices within cultures are important and, and others are normal, but they are still problematic. And that not all people within a particular culture enact that culture in the same way. So I think bringing this relational approach and the power approach to the social part and linking that with the idea of third order change is what maybe distinguishes the approach that we write about in terms of socioculturally attuned family therapy from earlier models of cultural competence. And I really like how you are saying it is across forms. It embodies you in the therapy room as a supervisor, as a, an educator, as we all are training the next generation of MFT. So those listeners like the kind of concrete skills when they listen to a podcast like this. So let's take each of those tenets and break them down a little. So start 
with attunement. So how can we better attune? Just like to add one thing right before we go there. When Carmen was talking and Maria were both talking about how this is applied across frameworks, I just wanted to add that the main purpose of this book, both editions, has been to develop trans-theoretical frameworks so that you can approach using any model of family therapy. You can approach that model and working within that model from a socioculturally attuned lens that pays attention to equitable relationships. And I think that's really basic. So just like the main tenets are trans-theoretical based on sociocultural context and power, as Carmen said, there also, there's this thread of this enviate that Maria was talking about that you're mentioning now to asking us to break it down into each of the acronyms and talk a little bit more about it. Those are also trans-theoretical. So it's just important that to us, and one of the reasons that prompted us to write this in the first place was as educators and supervisors, we would see ourselves and, our, and the students we worked with and the supervisees become increasingly aware they would un- could understand intersectionality. They, they could really get the idea of power in these big systems and how it affects intimate relationships. But once you walk into the therapy room, there was a pause in that. And it was very difficult for us to guide people as well as for students to or, and uh, to actually enact what they believed was important. So this book is really about what do we actually do and how does it blend into each model. So if you're using any of the models, how do you use them from an equity-based framework? So I just wanted to say that before we launched into Anviet. Yeah, and I'll say too, I have used both the first edition and the second edition alongside a couple of courses I teach, including your classic theories. So the book is structured really nicely. Many students will say, I really like some components of TJ family theory, but oh, it's so not inclusive. It's our classic models are many times mother bashing, patriarchal, and how can I take the spirit and what I like about that model and make it fit in a more inclusive, diverse world. So the book certainly does that, breaks it down nicely into chapters, both your traditional family therapy models and your postmodern models. And as you said, it's a trans-theoretical framework that really fits nicely and operationalizes what it means to be socially, culturally attuned. So that's what we're going to do now. And we'll start with power and context. How do we better attune to that within our clients, ladies? I would say that, first of all, it's a mindset that, that, that the therapist is really coming in and meeting with your client and you're saying to yourself, what is it like to live in the world as this particular client is in their context, whatever their social identities and social locations are. And then from that, I listen for words that are meaningful. So if a mother is talking about feeling guilty, then my mind says, what is that social meaning around guilt? And I would ask her, so tell me more about feeling guilty. And then I expand out. I start hearing little messages that says mothers are always supposed to be present for their children or they're, they're responsible for when their child gets in trouble in school or whatever it is. Then we can move into actually, which would, might be the naming, but the talking about what are those title messages that mothers get. But you start where the client is and really trying to apprehend it, not just cognitively 
think about, oh, they're in this setting or that setting, but what is that like for them? What does it mean? How does it influence what they feel? The other thing I would add about attunement is that in order to be able to do that, I've found that it's very helpful, if not necessary, to be able to have a broader view of the social context of power. So what you're going to attune to is limited or delimited by your worldview. So if you know nothing about, I don't know, fathers and sons and patriarchal systems, then it's going to be very difficult for you when you're working with fathers and sons and where the patriarchal binds are present to notice those or to attune to them. So you might, for example, attune to, oh, a father's being hard on his son. And so then you might ask the father, what was it like for you growing up? And he says, my father was really hard on me. And then you say, okay, that makes sense. That can you be more sensitive to your own son? That's pretty typical. But if you understand the bigger sociocultural bind in patriarchal societies of fathers inviting sons to become patriarchs at the same time needing to be the patriarch themselves and maintain their control, if you vision it bigger like that, then you see this dilemma that's much more significant and that the family needs to expand or could expand their view of the social context in order for them to untie that knot in a way that's liberatory for both the father and the son. Yeah, I love that. Now, moving on, the next tenet is the naming. So I find often in supervising and working with young MFTs, especially those in the majority working with the minority or diverse population, sometimes naming an injustice, which is very important for the socially, culturally attuned approach, is very difficult for young MFTs. So what are some ways they can be more confident in speaking up and naming the injustices in the client systems they're working with? I think I could speak to that a little bit. This is really in a, a difficult tension because a lot of times if we're the ones naming, then we're the ones that have the power to name. And so who even has the power to name matters. And what is an injustice matter? How do you manage that subjectivity even within a family or a system or even within and between cultures? We talk about navigating the tensions around naming. Ideally, the clients would name the injustice they see, and then sometimes we will name very carefully, very cautiously. Perhaps I see things one way. I could say, could it be that others might see it this way? And then there's some hard and fast ones, right? If it's one related to violence, it's hard to have an overarching like blanket answer to this one because it's so nuanced, but it's one of those things where it's hard to name in a calling out kind of way that creates shame or creates people to want to like back away, back down, not come back to therapy versus what Loretta Ross calls calling in. And so the naming is very difficult and we have to do it together with clients to make sure that everyone is naming in the same way. But I am curious what Carmen and Teresa, what they would add to that part of naming. I became very zealous about this whole idea about what's fair, what's right, what's equitable, about noticing and pointing things out. And sometimes I'll see beginning therapists, family therapists, take that excitement or intention in and do a lot of calling out and separating themselves or disconnecting from clients. So naming doesn't mean going in and saying, 
what you're doing is wrong or what you're doing is not fair. How could you be so unfair to your family? Or do you think you're racist? I mean, those kinds of things are not helpful in therapy. So the naming, I really like what you said, Maria, that the naming needs to be within therapeutic framework. So you might name something by saying, so this tension, to go back to my example earlier, this tension between you as a father and a son, how do you think that's impacted by the way in which the whole society looks at the power between fathers and sons? There's something I can't do it very well just off the cuff, but I really wanted to add I, and just I, accentuate that one part. Really want to reinforce what you just said, Teresa. It's not about pointing our fingers and saying this is bad, but it for me, it's a lot about naming what doesn't get said, giving voice to what it feels like to not be sure that you should speak. When somebody doesn't speak, I might ask them who listens and if they were to speak. And so you begin to name their experience about what's happening. And then what you can, it's very validating for somebody who's in a less powerful position where their experience has been silenced or marginalized, to hear that given credibility. I think that's a big part to me of what naming is as well. Yes. Speaking the unspoken. And, you know, the next part is after we name it is talking about how we can help our clients value what has been minimized. Again, it goes to the subjectivity of what gets valued. We talk about in our book how what often gets valued is what's reflected in the dominant group's values. So from a larger perspective, what gets valued often are things that are related to the SNAF ideologies, a standard North American family, or white the old way of thinking of white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, male, middle class, able-bodied, et cetera, heterosexual. And so those values are so entrenched and internalized by all of us that we don't often even stop to reflect what it is that we personally value, even as therapists or as supervisors or educators, and think about how are our values reflective of this larger dominant group. And then when we bump up against clients that have different values from ourselves, what does that mean for us? What does it mean to be different? In our book, we have a lot of uh, deconstructive type questions or reflexive type questions that help us think through this. What does it, what do we value? How do we understand values and what do the values reflect? And so I will often in, the, in session ask my clients like, uh, I was just working with a couple the other day and I asked them to make a list of their values and examine the way in which they align. But again, when even within a family system, when values get discounted, minimized between them, what does that mean? How do you stand next to the person whose values are often um, discounted, minimized, ignored, devalued? So it does require a, just a strong attunement to that process. So that's just a little bit about how I would see that, how we would navigate that whole concept of value and valuing and values. And so I'm remembering, a, this is a case I was supervising, where the man came in and he was very depressed and felt like he needed to learn how to become more assertive. A real common response would be to join with him in that goal and help him do some assertiveness training or something because he was having trouble speaking up at work and such. And that could be useful, but 
what wasn't being valued in that was the values that he was a man who listened to others. He was a man who had relational capacities. And so before I would engage or have my supervisee engage with him around assertiveness training, I want to make sure that he feels validated and sees the value in some of the qualities that he was demonstrating, but that are not reinforced in the larger society and which were contributing to his depression. And that doesn't mean we can't also help him consider about what the value of assertiveness might be, but it's making sure we don't leave out the values that are minimized in our society. I would add one more thing to that from my own experience, and that is looking at the paradigm within which you're working and what you consider to be healthy or unhealthy. So part of what brought me into family therapy was going to treatment for alcohol addiction for several of my family members. And each time we'd go for a week, and it was wonderful, amazing, life-changing. However, it was also all framed in us being, and my as a child, being enabling to a parent. And so I was an enabler, and I was codependent, and I looked at myself through that lens for a long time. Until now, I'm realizing that's only one way of looking at it. So yes, I worked, I did a lot of parentified things as a child, but the valuing that I needed that I ended up offering to myself later on was about resilience. It was about learning how to help others, being well-intended. So there's all kinds of things to value in that, in my experience or about who I am that was not pathological. And I think it was just so powerful how the therapist chooses to frame something because clients will see it and think that must be true. Yeah, I love that. And it's reframing, helping our clients that are demoralized and maybe oppressed by these macro kind of forces that marginalize them. So how do we help our clients envision alternatives to systems that, again, marginalize them, subjugate them, and perpetuate these inequalities? How do we help our clients go from to so say demoralized to remoralized around these issues? Simple thing, really, is to realize that just naming the problem doesn't help clients envision something different. The therapist has to be willing to introduce an envisioning conversation. And my experience with a lot of therapists, especially new therapists, is that oftentimes that is where they would stop. Like they would see what the problems are, but they felt they didn't want to be leading the client too much. So they would just, they wouldn't help them take that next step. And that next step can be as simple as saying, so if we're, if you're coming at the, maybe you've just talked about the resilience that Teresa was just mentioning with um, the family that's dealing with alcoholism or something. So if you imagine what would you be doing if you were valuing your resilience? What would you be doing when you're trusting that what you have to say is important or that caring about others is important? And just being willing to bring that conversation forward and then asking for what would it look like? What would you do? What would you say? What might you feel inside? Because clients need help translating broad 
abstract concepts into something concrete in their lives. I think that's wonderful. Other thoughts on that before we talk about what you have alluded to throughout our talk today, which I think is another great contribution of your approach, which is this idea of third order thinking. Third order thinking is as common as lecture, past conversations and so on. It is not necessarily new. Other people have used this kind of way of thinking, but it's a way to look at things that could have a pretty significant impact on the way you do family therapy. Let's just take first order thinking. You think about things that are more common sense, like we give an example in the book about a couple who has a, a newborn child and they're trying to figure out what to do if they both work and they're tired and they don't want to go up with this baby. And they got to go to the therapist. The therapist has a great idea. The therapist says, hey, why don't you just do it every other night? One of you get up one night, one of you get up the next night. And that seems smart and a good idea. And it's all very common sense. It has nothing to do with how they're looking at the world or anything to do with the system or the way they're interacting in general. It's just a good common sense idea. A lot of therapists and counselors will do that. And they'll get frustrated when their clients are unable to be successful with the intervention. Because it's all within already established framework of what you think is makes sense. Second order thinking is really about thinking about yourself as part of the system, thinking about the dynamics in the system in a more complex way. When the clients come in, you're thinking, wow, if I offer that solution, that's probably pretty common sense. I need to think about this differently. And then you might watch the couple and see how they're interacting. And then you're paying attention to yourself. So let's say in this case that one of them is more dominant, the other one, they're talking more. You're allowing that one to talk more. You're asking more questions of the more dominant partner. The more dominant partner is deciding on the schedule for who's going to wake up when. And then you say, wait a minute, this system, as I look at this secular perspective, I can see that there's an imbalance here. I can see that I'm privileging one person over the other. So I'm looking at the therapeutic system and the relational system. And that's super helpful. You really can't do family therapy unless you can do that pretty much consistently. Third order thinking is to say, huh, how does this happen in a family? How, where do these messages come from? And how is this reflected by the broader system? Of course, the social constructionist thinking, we think a lot about that around how meaning is developed, how values are socially constructed, and so on. Third order thinking is different from that because you're thinking about how all these systems come into play. So it's not just the meaning around motherhood and fatherhood and all that, which is super important. It's also the fact that they're both working in a system that an economic system that requires two people to work in order to live well at all. It's also maybe because they live in a system where there's different demands on men and women at work. If this is a heterosexual couple or people at work, we need to look at what is their social situation and how tenuous is it that they might lose their housing or that they are dealing with whatever other systems are at play. So you're looking at all these systems and understanding how they play into that everyday decision about who's getting up at two o'clock in the morning. Yes, how the macro impacts the micro as far as the family system and making that connection. So the therapist has to make that connection first. And then how do they connect with the clients around that? Is it more of a way of being or is it making it explicit to the client system tied into why they're coming to therapy? You're really talking about third order thinking 
versus third order change. And third order change, of course, is comes right alongside of that same kind of explanation. But the creating third order changes, that is really what envy is, refers to. I want to say too that when we think about how do we help our students think in this way, I've had students tell me how is this different from an ecological model? And for me, what is different is that we are when we talk about connecting the dots from these larger social systems, systems that afford privilege and systems that afford oppression or and a combination of both, how are we helping the clients either overtly by asking them questions about how do you think about how society views people of color or Hispanic immigrants in your community? How do you think that influences your participation in your child's school? Could that at all be a factor or could it be something else like you just present it as an idea, but that you're connecting when you see that the racism and the discrimination, the marginalization is happening in the life of this family. And you're saying, could it be that? Or that you could even just boldly say, I see it that sometimes certain of the families that I work with say that they've experienced this discrimination in the school system or in the legal system or whatever, wherever it might be. So yeah, sometimes it's more overt and by ask, asking them or I pose it as a question. But it, the connecting the dots, what makes a difference is that critical consciousness comes into the room and everything that you do, it's with your being, like you said, Eli, it's how you approach the, the people that you're working with, the questions that you ask. And that third order thinking once, it's just like critical consciousness, once it's on, you can't undo it. And one of the things I'm sure we're going to get to is this commitment to it. Like we, there's just, there's never a place in your life where you're not strongly committed to helping people connect those dots so that they feel more aware of how larger systems affect their lives and their relationships and how they internalize all these things that are harmful to them to internalize these values, these beliefs, these practices that they internalize and problematize. This is my problem. There's something wrong with me, as opposed to there's something wrong in society where I'm being forced to fit into something that is pathological or problematic. In a very practical way, I've gotten much, much better over the years at asking questions that expand the lens outward. So I might ask a client, so where did the idea that you could be working all of the time, where do you think that comes from? Or I've noticed that so many other parents tell me the same thing. Why do you think parents are struggling with feeling like they don't have enough time available for their children? Or It's questions that make that connection, but the language of the question moves it from something that's inside the client, which of course we are addressing at other times, but it helps them expand their thoughts to what could be happening out there around me. and. That takes practice, but we have lots of examples of that in the book of questions that help to expand in that way. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's talk about the second edition of the book. The first edition of the book is great. I have both. And as I said, I use the second edition alongside my traditional models course. What are the new updates in the second edition of Socially Culturally Attuned Family Therapy? I think the, the most exciting piece is we were trying to think how. We are limited by our own experiences and we're all women. And so we invited 25 other people that just what we would call third order thinking and work toward third order change. 
to share how they use Ambient. And the book just has these wonderful examples from such a diverse group of our colleagues that we're very grateful for that. And then Teresa did a lot of this, but we really expanded at the beginning of the book a lot more of the information about how inequities in the larger societal context affect the well-being of people and ability to have strong and healthy relationships. My last question I'd like you all to take a stab at. The last part of the, your acronym is TRANSFORM. So I think of you all as innovators and transformers of our profession in doing this type of work. So what do we need to do better? Many MFT educators listen to this podcast. What do we need to do better as an MFT profession, as educators in the training of socially, culturally attuned family therapists? When we look back at this in a couple of years, where are we headed? What do we need to improve? I'm just going to be bold a little bit with a little bit of fear and trepidation. But I would like to see AMFT, just to begin with the United States and our main organization, perhaps to apply Anviet at a systems level, at an organizational level, and maybe do a deeper check on how is the organization who is so influential and important to us. For me, I like I said, I'm, I've been a member the whole time I've been in this profession, and um, I want to see the organization continue to thrive and grow and, and to create transformations. But I think we have to continue to think about how is an organization, is the organization and all of us in it, attuning, naming, value, et cetera, so that we can get to places of transformation because that's where my hope would be. The final chapter addresses just what Maria is talking about, how to apply the Anviet principles beyond just our clinical practice, but in our organizations, our classrooms, our approach to change at all kinds of levels. And so there's that piece. I think for the field of family therapy, I hope that we continue to really appreciate what it means to be a systemic therapist. Because frankly, I think that many family therapy programs now really are doing a much better job than our sister disciplines of bringing in the contextual pieces because it fits our model. It isn't new to think about the mind and context. That's Gregory Bateson, right? And so I think what we need to do is not think of attunement to culture and to larger contexts as add-ons, but to think about it as the place that we begin and what it really means to be a systemic therapist. Some of us are doing that more and more. More of us are doing that all the time. And there's a long ways to go as well. I would just echo that idea about this kind of thinking not being an add-on. And I think we're starting to get there a little bit, or maybe a lot but that it's a practical matter. When you look at social determinants of health, when you look at solving relational problems and psychological, emotional problems, equity, as Carmen said way back in 2013 in her article, Why Power Matters, it matters. And it's more basic. It's less of a moral issue and more of a practical issue. So the more we come from that as part of an ingrained, integrated part of systems and the way in which our field works, the further we're going to get. And we need to be, move away from being polarized on some sort of ideological or moral grounds and move into an acceptance of this being just part and parcel to doing systems work. We've got therapy. 
And I want to add too, we can't transform unless we envision what is possible. And that is constantly and adamantly and having a strong commitment to equity and social justice. And without that envisioning, what does it look like in schools? What does it look like in legal systems? What does it look like? And all of our systems, our institutions, our structures are at the larger level, whatever that means. And Teresa, we even had conversations about what does this mean for our planet? We think of ecofeminism, et cetera. But we have to envision what is possible and begin with the end in mind. So if you have a clear vision for what equity should look like at every level, at least from your perspective, then you start working toward that to dismantling oppressive systems and institutions. I was just reading an editorial in the New York Times this morning, and they were talking about how people who are focused on what might be thought of as more liberal ideas in terms of the environment and justice have higher rates of depression, which is in itself depressing. But the article emphasized the importance of what Maria is just saying, envisioning. And I think what we are talking about in terms of it being able to apply these principles to helping clients have hope and optimism for themselves and for the future and to see other possibilities is and not be mired in problems is what where I get my energy and my hopefulness for the future. So I could not say it any better than you three ladies have said it. Rather than being an add-on, this should be a built-in as the way we work as relational healers and systemic family therapists. If our listeners want to continue the dialogue with you, please give them the best way to contact you. My email is Carmen. C-A-R-M-E-N at L-C-L-A-R-K dot E-D-U. My email is Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A-M-C, Teresa Mech at L-Clark dot E-D-U. And my email is Maria dot Bermudez, G-A dot E-D-U. That's M-A-R-I-A dot B-E-R-M-U-D-E-Z, U-G-A dot E-D-U. We're starting to develop some free courses on a colleague and I have a website for advancing your career. It's called ACORN, Advanced Career Online Resource Network. And there is a great example of Carmen offering socioculturally attuned couples therapy that is free to viewers if you'd like to see more. And a class on socioculturally attunement that is available also for free. That's acorn.thumpific.com. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another thought-provoking edition of the AAMFT podcast. Thank you so much, Teresa, Carmen, and Maria. You gave us a lot to think about. Again, I highly recommend the book. If you are searching for more knowledge, always amft.org, the Enhanced Knowledge tab. You will find ways to continue your evolution and education as a systemic therapist, including Tenio, that's the online education system where you can find other quality offerings around diversity, multiculturalism. Also, that's where you'll find AMFT webinars on various topics of systemic therapy, private practice management, and other issues facing MFTs today that we tackle on the podcast. I love listener feedback. It drives our show. Please drop me a line. I'm at Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. Follow us on Twitter 
AMFT is at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. You can also go to EliCaram.com. Find out everything that's going on with me, including my books that are out. One, the licensure review for the national exam, and my book with my colleague and AMFT president-elect, Dr. Adrian Blow, Bringing Common Factors to Life in Couple and Family Therapy. Listen to us wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'd appreciate a star rating and a review that helps us rise to the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.